This is a podcast from Minute Media. This is a CW Spiral, a podcast run by two Barchies and a Bughead. We're your hosts, Sabrina Reed, Michael Patterson, and Reed Gowden, bringing you history about the network, the latest news, and in-depth spoiler-filled discussions of some of our favorite shows on the CW. Welcome to a special episode of the CW Spiral. Usually we want we launch right in, but today we're going to be talking about Batman. So it's fun to get y'all geared up for what we're going to be discussing today. But we're going to start with Matt Lees's The Batman. So thoughts, opinions, hot takes. I love that. I really have to say. Um, I mean, you don't really have to try hard to get me to love a Batman movie. Like lifelong Batman fan here. Um, but uh It was one of the best live action Batman movies. I know the consensus is that it's probably the second best one behind the Dark Knight. Um, I don't necessarily share opinions like that, but it's up there in the top four or five for me. Um, Robert Pattinson was excellent. The movie was excellent. The script was excellent. And it was very different. It was like a detective story. And it's it, it made use, uh, we, we call Batman the Dark Knight, we call Batman the Cape Crusader. We also call him the world's greatest detective and no movie has made use of that quite like the Batman did. So it was kind of like a three-hour British thriller, crime thriller and it just focused on the detective aspect of it and I thought it was fantastic. I have not seen it. <laughs> I'm not in a rush to see it, but I'm happy for you guys and for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's amazing. Um, I think everyone has seen like Selena Kyle's moments. Her fashion moments have been were awesome. I like Michael really loved that it was a detective story because uh, we haven't seen that. Um, and prior to it releasing, I had been talking forever about how it's like it's the emo Batman of my dreams, right? Like it's very my chemical romance. He's brooding. He's um, He's socially awkward, which I really liked, like his connection with Selena. It was there from the beginning, but you could tell he didn't know what to do with his attraction to her other than stand there awkwardly and stare. Um, And I thought that really worked because that's Robert Pattinson, not his brand, but it's it. It didn't go a little Edward Cullen, but it had it had a moment and I really enjoyed them. Um, And I I thought Riddler was terrifying, like absolutely unsettling. And that's different for him, considering he's usually whimsical and still terrifying, but not in the way that they did in the Batman. Mm, They definitely went the whole like serial killer route with this. And you've seen in like previous Batman games how the Riddler uh, being such a uh, goofy, lighthearted villain can edge towards the dangerous Saw-like territory. And the Batman kind of went all in on that and removed the whimsical everything about it, the costume, the look, the approach, everything about it was that much more grounded. And it really paid off in the story really well. And the fact that Bruce Wayne was barely even a character in the story, it was basically just Batman, even when he wasn't wearing the outfit, he still behaved like Batman. So it was kind of, that was kind of really, there was no, there weren't multiple layers to the story as far as tones go. It all held the same kind of tone and that kind of worked in its favor because usually the Batman would then, or the Batman movies would have like the lighthearted Bruce Wayne stuff or the broody Bruce Wayne stuff. And then it would be centered on this Batman mystery villains kind of arc, whereas everything blurred together in this film and I thought that was what really set it apart from the rest of them I think so too same with the character the Gotham being a character in itself I never Mm. want to visit that city ever (laughs) but it looked amazing can I ask what was the soundtrack like like did the music mirror the like emo-ness or was it just like regular score 
Like, was there any My Chemical Romance? Did they, <laughs> did they not go that route? <laughs> no. So there is like, obviously, the Nirvana um, track that was playing that we'd heard from the trailer. I do not remember the musical moments. And I think they were largely instrumentals. Um, and then they, I, I might be in the minority here. I thought they overdid his bat theme. I felt like I was always getting blasted in the ear. Yes. Yeah, they, they played the Nirvana theme was it twice in the movie, which you don't usually hear the trailer song come back in the movie, like with that sort of, kind of that prominence. Um, so that kind of added to the vibe of it. Uh, we knew what we were getting from the trailer and the movie kind of uh, ad- adhered to that 100%. There were other songs. Ave Maria was played an awful lot, which was obviously on paper is quite an interesting choice, but it, it plays into the story quite nicely. Um and then, yes, basically the theme was played over and over and over again. Um, and I don't think it'll ever leave my head. But it, it, it definitely added to the whole like tone the movie was going for. It was an exquisite piece of music. It reminded me a lot of Batman the Animated Series. So even though it was quite a unique Batman story, it felt like it definitely paid tribute to other Batman adaptations before that. So as a lifelong Batman fan, I came away from it very, very happy. Mm, same though now that we're talking about the music i'm trying to do you remember what was playing in the iceberg lounge or was that just edm noise like it didn't like that might not have been made like an actual song yeah i'm pretty sure that's what it was and then it did some of them like tunnel shots where you're just focused on like batman walking through them and you couldn't hear it really hear the sounds but there was definitely like beats that it, it didn't it teased the music without ever giving it to us Okay, because I was like, oh, wait, I remember that too. Um, but it didn't it didn't hold my attention the way that the Nirvana mm-hmm. song did. And then the theme. But speaking of tone, though, um, I'm going to hop to some of the Bat fam because there was casting news for Gotham Knights, which has me wondering what the tone of the show is going to be. I'm excited either way. They might try to do a balance of dark um, and funny, but um, just to get our listeners hip to the news if they don't know. So they've casted Fallon Smythe as Harper Rowe, who, um, Max, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes. she's a, yes. Okay. And she's yes. a streetwise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have our facts correct. Uh, no, because people really do love the Bad Family. We have to be up on our information. Um, but she's going to be a streetwise, blue haired bisexual who's an engineer whiz. And she's the sister of Cullen Rowe, who's going to be played by Tyler. I'm going to try to pronounce this right. I'm going to say it's Dee Chayara, uh, who's a trans teen who's tired of hiding who he is. And he's clever and good at reading. He's also described as um, wanting to fight back um, now that he's really found his sense of self. Um, And the casting that I'm most excited about is Navia Robinson, who's going to play Carrie Kelly, who's our Robin. if I've heard of Nuya, she was on uh, Raven's Home. And so we've gone from Disney to the CW, which seems to be like a good hop for her. This should be really great. Um, she's described as fearless, idolistic, and plucky as hell. And then I guess we'll save the last two just so we can get into these three. Mm. I like those three castings. I also like those three characters because they are comic book characters. And we know when this was brought up, there was the whole question of will the CW go down the comic book route or will they do go down the Legends of Tomorrow route and just cast a load of original characters and 
make them DC heroes. No, so I think they've kind of gone a bit of both rights here in that we now have three DC characters. Harper Rose, Bluebird, that's uh, over the recent years, that character's really grown up and become an incredibly popular member of the Bat family. Colin Rowe, I am less familiar with, but uh, he is, uh, he he does exist in the comics. um, And I do know, I I do know often by name, but I don't really, I never really followed any of the stories he was involved in. And the one that excites me the most Carrie Kelly. Um, we had a, a conversation a while ago about how the show will definitely include a Robin. In my mind, this one was never an option because I never thought they would go there. And I'm very pleased that they did. Obviously, in the comics, we have four Robins and Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake and Damian Wayne, Bruce's actual son. So there were, everyone thought maybe Damian would be the, the one that popped up. But the show would rewrite that he was an adopted son. But we've decided to completely scrap that route altogether and bring in Carrie Kelly, who is most famous for appearing in the comic The Dark Knight Returns. And even though she hasn't appeared all that often outside of the Dark Knight series, she's been an incredibly popular character throughout. So I'm really excited to see. I believe this will be her first live action portrayal. So I'm really excited to see how it goes. She's a deep cut, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for her because I know... Um... She got cut from Raven's Home. I don't know if that was her choice or a creative decision behind the scenes, but it's so cool to see a Disney Channel star make the leap to the CW so soon because I feel like we don't see that so quickly because the, the span of time between Raven's Home and this is so short. But I think there's a lot to be excited about for her casting specifically, but all of the castings, the, the three that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I think so, too, because Black Girl Robin, yes. Um, As you two know, I got weepy (laughs) when the news (laughs) dropped. I'm so excited. Um, I like that the CW is um, continuing to push for more representation. Obviously, we need to hold their feet to the fire when it comes to how that representation is portrayed on screen. But the fact that you have um, a bisexual character and a trans character also, and I'm assuming going to be lead roles, um, is good. I mean, it's just, it's continuing to step in the right direction for the network in terms of allowing more stories to be told. I'm just hoping that they have real fleshed out, grounded stories, um, because we already know they'll probably do really well with the two other castings. So there's Oscar Morgan as Turner Hayes, who's going to play the, ad- well, we're going to assume that that's Bruce's son, because he's described as being the adoptive child of a billionaire, and he's, th- he's trying to live up to his father's name. Um, I don't know who else, who, who other, what other billionaire that would be. Obviously, it sounds like Bruce does. Um, and then you have Olivia Rose Keegan as Duella. Um, and she's described as being abrasive and a little unhinged. And she was born in Arkham Asylum. And her father is the most dangerous man in Gotham. When I read that, I immediately thought Joker and Harley's child, perhaps. Um, but we'll see. These are very interesting castings because on one end you have a character who I do believe is 100% original. And I know that will frustrate a lot of people because you have this comic book story and it's led by a new version of the Bat family, but the three comic book characters are going to be more supporting roles and it looks like the lead role will be an original character. And I can see where that frustration will come from. I do not believe Turner has exists in the comics, but I'm definitely open to giving it a try. Like we've said, Legends of Tomorrow did a good job introducing original characters and making them DC heroes. Duella is an interesting one because 
I love that description that her father is the most dangerous man in Gotham. It doesn't tell as which. And that kind of alludes to her comic book backstory and that she was introduced in the Joker's daughter arc. But she also claimed to be Catwoman's daughter, Scarecrow's daughter, Penguin's daughter, Riddler's daughter before Robin dropped the bombshell that she was, in fact, Two-Face's daughter. So I feel like that's got CW drama written all over it. And I really want to see that arc adapted on the CW just for the chaos it would cause. Do you guys think since I know when the show was announced, it was kind of polarizing to fans. Do you think as two people who are more invested in this world than I am, seeing some faces to these characters and hearing the descriptions, does it settle any like doubts you might have had initially? Or do you think at all um, any fans who were like apprehensive or like, we don't want this. Do you think they'll be like, oh, okay, this seems like it's something that I can get into? I personally, I didn't have doubts because I came in with an open mind about Gotham Knights. I was just excited to be doing more things in Gotham. Um, but as far as fans who are like, mm, not sure, I think it could go one of two ways. There'll be the people who are frustrated because it, like Michael mentioned, the lead character is going to be an original character. They also might be more diverse than some people want, which I'm sorry, guys. Well, actually, I'm not sorry. This is the wave of the future. This is what we're doing. Get on the train or, you know, watch something else. Like, you don't have to tune in. No one's making you. It's an Um, optional train. It's an optional train. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Wait for Um, the next one. (laughs) (laughs) But the the people who were like, okay, I know that... we're doing Gotham, or we're going to do a more diverse Gotham, or we're going to continue with the trend of the Arrowverse diversifying, they might be like, hmm, this lineup looks good to me. I might at least watch the first episode. Yeah, I can see. I mean, I can't, I don't want to see the other side of the argument, but I can see it being an issue for some people. Um, uh, that it's that it's got CW aspects written all over it, but like, it's a CW show. What were you expecting? Um, it, it is. A, it's a train I want to be part of. Absolutely. I was. I don't have the issues that the rest of the people have when whenever there's a new CW superhero show announced. Heck, I don't even have those issues whenever there's a new CW show announced. I'll hop on that train anyway. So I feel like this had me written all over it, and it still has me written all over it. I would. I would be tuning into this every, even if it's on the dreaded Sunday night slots. You can bet I'll be there. Um, so you're like, no. <laughs> don't manifest it. I mean, I'll be there, but don't manifest it. Yes, I'm not speaking that into existence. My apologies. <laughs> uh, no, but everything about that looks good to me. It will be interesting, and it's not going to be as closely tied to the Batman story as everybody really wants a CW Batman show to be. It definitely looks like it's going to go more of the Batwoman route and existing outside of a previous Batman verse that we can no longer talk about. But as far as that goes, I'm definitely on board and I think it looks great. Which like, again, exciting. Like the fact that the more casting news is dropping has been like, we're getting closer and closer to like, what might be, I'm hoping the fall of seeing um, Gotham Knights. Uh, But Michael, you mentioned the history of the CW and like what they're doing with Batman. So what I'm most excited about to talk about for this episode is CW history concerning Batman. So take it away, Michael. Let's do it. Um, So for this episode, we're we're talking Batman heavy. The Gotham Knights casting news played right into our favor because we got to talk more about Batman. Um, But let's be honest, the CW has had a long history with superheroes and it all started with a little show called Smallville. Are we familiar with Smallville? 
the iconic Smallville. Um, uh, but ironically, when it was on the WB, it, I believe it started out of an idea for, yes, Batman. Um, I believe they wanted to make a live action Batman series in the tone of Smallville before Smallville existed. It eventually turned into Smallville, but they wanted to make a live action Batman series about Bruce Wayne's younger days set in Gotham. And it may have been called Gotham that came later on Fox after Smallville ended, but at the time it wasn't doable. So they turned it into Smallville. Smallville ran for 10 wonderful seasons, which eventually paved the way for the Arrowverse. But it's quite funny to think that this universe that now exists in which it very much has to exist outside of Batman actually started with an idea for a Batman series. And nearly two, over two decades later, we still have not had a Batman series on the CW, but we've gotten close quite a few times. It's quite an interesting history. So obviously Smallville was the first of the superhero, these modern day superhero shows. You, you hadn't really had these kind of superhero shows since like the old days of the, the 60s Batman or the 70s Wonder Woman. And then of course there were like attempts throughout the 90s and the 80s and they weren't all that successful. And then Smallville introduces the first modern day superhero show. And it definitely paved the way for the likes of Arrow to come afterwards. Throughout Smallville, there were hints towards Batman existing. They could never really go there. They did mention Gotham at one point. Um, and then I believe it was in 2003, they tried the, w, the WB tried their luck at uh, another Bat-inspired series with Birds of Prey. It unfortunately went the route of the older 90s series and that it didn't last past one season. But it was very different, very different to Smallville, and I believe maybe that's the reason it didn't work at the time. The reason Smallville kind of worked was because it was in this teeny uh, vibe that the WB was going for. It had the like teen drama, it had the soapy aspect of it as well. Whereas Birds of Prey was very superhero orientated, and it was, I believe, loosely tied to the movies or the previous Batman movies. So there were hints towards the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher films. I believe they referenced Michael Keaton's Batman at Michelle Fiverr's Catwoman at one point. And basically the story was that it was obviously, if you're familiar with the Birds of Prey comic book characters, it was about them, but it was definitely more of a TV version of it. And that you had Oracle, who's the previous Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, um, now uh, was basically the Birds of Prey's girl in the chair. She operated out of the Watchtower. Um, they had a new character come in to play Batgirl. And the Huntress, who is a comic book character called Helena Bertinelli, they decided to go a different route with her and have her called, be called Helena Kyle, which was Batman and Catwoman's daughter. It was good. It had potential. But unfortunately, we weren't ready for full-blown superheroes at the time. So it didn't make it past its first season. And they never tried to cross over with Smallville? Nope, nope. I do not, I do not believe they did. Um, and... It's quite interesting now because literally any DC show can really cross over with anyone. But yeah. back then, I think the tones were so different that either it was never an option, it had never been done before, or they just yeah, decided not to do it. He wasn't Superman yet, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. For the but longest then, time. These shows love rewriting the stories. Like in Gotham, you had the Riddler be born like a decade before Batman even showed up. So I, they definitely could have gotten away with it if they wanted to go that route. But I just think Birds of Prey wasn't the success they were hoping it was. It was also at a time when you didn't see that many female-led superhero dramas. It's a tar- terrible thing to say. That should never have been the way. But it wasn't until like Supergirl came in like, 
12 years later that we finally saw that movement take off. Um, it did work, obviously, in the 70s with the Linda Carter series, but just it had been too long. People didn't know what to expect from the superhero genre. Um, and as good as Batman was, there were no Batman movies on at the time to like lift Birds of Prey. The Joel Schumacher franchise was dead thanks to the notorious Batman and Robin. It was a bit be a while before it resurfaced with Batman Begins. So Birds of Prey kind of came around at a time when Batman, the, probably the only time in the last three or 40 decades where Batman hasn't been that kind of overarching presence. It was kind of awkward to talk about him because everyone thought about the Schumacher movies, which killed the franchise. Um, and we didn't know if it was ever going to be rebooted. So it was like, I remember going up in that era, like everyone was like, Batman's such an old fashioned thing. It, it, it was such, it, 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 it didn't, it didn't work the way it did before and it would again. So the fact that they had female superheroes on TV direct, that were directly tied to the Batman franchise, it just didn't have the pull they were hoping it would. And it's a shame because I think Birds of Prey in today's day and age could have been incredibly successful. <coughs> Green Arrow and the Canaries. But um, <laughs> uh, it just it felt like a missed opportunity. And you would <laughs> Green think Arrow that, and the Canaries. Like, <laughs> and you would think that like at that time we had Buffy and Charmed and granted they're not superheroes, but it was women saving the day and you would yeah. think that that precedent would have been set and more people would have been open to some women superheroes that's true but i wonder if it's like michael said that batman was considered to be old-fashioned and then you have like helena kyle like a hybrid character and, and people love Batcat. but if we're in the middle of a, a, not a batman drought but i guess a the the Pop culture wasn't on Batman's side in terms of live action things that I guess it makes sense that Birds of Prey didn't really do well. It's like a good idea in the wrong era. That's exactly what it was, because I feel like some of the sins of that era reflected on the show. And as a result, it hasn't quite aged as well as some of the other shows from that era. Like the things we learned in Smallville, the things it, it, that kind of inspired modern day TV, and some some of Smallville still holds up really well. Yeah, some of the effects are dated, but the storylines could still probably mostly work in today's day and age. Whereas a lot of Birds of Prey's presentation had a very dated, vintage '90s look about it, and even even though it will er, it aired in what 2002, 2003, so even though that that was kind of left behind in the '90s, Birds of Prey brought it back because it was trying to look like the '90s Batman movies, and I just think that maybe ultimately worked against it it's a shame because the show did have plenty of potential and it was one it probably it was the first time was it i believe it was the first time any iteration of batman even though he wasn't in the show there was the flashbacks with with an actor wearing the val kilmer suit from the movies it was the first time we'd ever seen like batman on tv since the 60s tv series and it's a shame it didn't really work because like i said batman could have been responsible for this modern age of superhero tv we spent the last decade asking for a batman show and never got it so it's a shame that Birds of Prey, which would have been the first real kind of one outside of Smallville, never really got the chance to take off the way that some of its uh, successors really did. So that means Superman is the successor of TV, <laughs> which I mean, I guess those who love Clark more get to get to um, hold that trophy up in the air. Yeah. And like we know now with Superman at Lois, uh, super, su I have to say Batman's mm -hmm. thing is the movies, but Superman's thing is television. If, if Christopher Reeves aside, all the big, all the big Superman adaptations people tend to remember came from TV. You had the original black and white one. You had Dean Cain in the 90s as Clark at Lois TV series. You had Tom Welling in Smallville. Now we've Tyler Hacklin on Supergirl and Superman at Lois. 
So I, I do think that the most iconic Superman came from TV. On, that's why it made sense that they pivoted to the Smallville direction to start this whole modern day superhero TV era on the CW. It's just a shame that Batman's never really had that kind of TV success. And I hope that whoever's talking about superhero TV in 100 years from now will have a Batman TV show to hark back to because it's quite frustrating for Batman fans never to have really, outside of Adam West in the 60s, of course, never to really have had that iconic Batman on the small screen. That's okay, true, wait, hold on. doesn't count. How did you pronounce Tyler's last name? I've never heard it pronounced and you just said it and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I picked that up from his Twitter account. Tyler Hacklin, I believe is how it's pronounced. Please oh, correct me on that if I'm wrong. That just blew my mind. I'm <laughs> sorry, this is like completely unrelated to Batman, but I... <laughs> I've been saying Hochlin. Okay, I'm going to add that now to the... To sorry, the I told you this episode would be educational. <laughs> oh, it okay, is. Back to Batman. <laughs> Oh, wait, you would say that Gotham doesn't count. Yeah, I believe Gotham. Okay. The end of Gotham, if you've seen the final episode, does count because, spoiler alert, Batman appeared. But um, it doesn't really. Of course, Warner Brothers had a say in it, but it didn't earn the WB or CW. And of, of all the modern day superhero shows, it was not really a superhero show. It did get gimmicky and goofy as it went on because people love that the same way they love Legends of Tomorrow. But the thing is, it started as a police procedural and then evolved into kind of like this goofy carnival like show. It was violent at times. It dealt with the villains' arcs as much as it did with Bruce's. A lot of it was like, it sounds really predictable, but gothic, it just, it, Gotham worked for what it was, but I don't think the original idea that they had back in the early 2000s, late 90s, was what Gotham would have ultimately become. I believe Gotham was definitely down to the evolution of TV. If Gotham had heard on in early 2000s instead of Smallville, that would not have been what Gotham was. It meant, I don't know, Bruce Wayne doesn't strike me as like a teen idol the way Clark Kent does. So I don't think they would have went the Smallville route with it either, but maybe that's why it ultimately didn't work which is why Smallville did, if you know what I mean. Superman always seems to have more of a TV uh, presence. And that, coupled with the fact that the WB was obsessed with teen dramas and that Smallville's teenage, or Clark's teenage years in Smallville lent itself to that nicely, everything just fell into place for Smallville. And I, even looking back now, I can see why they ultimately didn't go the Batman route, because I don't think all of them would have fallen into place for a young Bruce Wayne. Isn't he just like a sad billionaire? Like, how do you do that as a teen? Not to be ignorant about like <laughs> Bruce Wayne, but like, isn't that just what he is? Like, how do you do that as a teen? Well, that, that's definitely Bruce Wayne on the surface. And I'm not sure the Batman does anything to uh, do away with that uh, reputation. But oh. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, obviously he lost his parents when he was a child. It depends on what adaptation you're working with, but a lot of them uses teenage years. Gotham, for example, and the Batman Begins Nolan franchise uses early 20s or teenage years so that he goes off and starts fighting in the mountains uh, with the League of Assassins and learns all the gifts that he ultimately brings back to Gotham as Batman. Um, I don't know if all that was written into the story back in what was it, 2000s. I don't know if all that was written back into the story back then, but... Uh, 
the Christopher Nolan franchise changed things in that obviously a lot of adaptations have since pulled from that. They've used his younger years to go back and start fighting. But like I said, if, I don't think if they started into the, in the 2000s, they would have had a drama on the W Bay where he spent every episode in the mountains fighting assassins to learn his craft. That Obviously, that story works much better in the movies. Gotham went down a similar route, but they never really went down the fighting route. Bruce learned theatricality when, uh, during his trips away. He learned how to deceive people. He learned how to hide in the shadows. But Gotham never really went down the physical route the way all these superhero shows do where there's like 10 fight scenes an episode so i don't know i think that's a fantastic question i do not know what a uh, gotham would have looked like in the early 2000s would it have been sad billionaire bruce for 10 episodes or let's be honest 22 episodes a season yeah, like, he's just in <laughs> high school just being sad <laughs> well a rich high school but like a prestigious academy yeah. where he'd be. i mean gotham did I don't know how they did his education. Why do I want to say that he was homeschooled by Alfred? Uh, but um, I think that's exactly what happened. That was it. it would, <laughs> okay. No, okay. So here's what it would be. It would be what season four Riverdale when Jughead goes to that that school. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. it would be. That would yes. be yes, yeah, Teen Batman. <laughs> it would be a secret society, but like teenage Riddler, teenage Penguin, teenage Joker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but. Let's shift gears to a bit more of a successful Batman chapter on the CW, and that was the evolution of Arrow. When Arrow came about, it was basically, basically Batman in a hood. Let's be honest. Oliver Queen is lighthearted, he's blonde, and he is a much more colourful character than Bruce Wayne. But Arrow was released just as Nolan's Batman trilogy came to an end, and they definitely wanted to go for the more realistic route. And for two glorious seasons, that worked like a dream because Arrow was grounded. It was dark. It was basically Batman in a hood. And after you got over that, you you were actually like, hold on a minute. This is good superhero television. Smallville obviously went the teen route. Arrow went full-blown superhero. And I don't think that would have been possible without what Smallville gave to the genre. Smallville walked so that Arrow could run. And run did Arrow do for those first two seasons. And... um. That didn't make grammatical sense, but you get the point. <laughs> but uh, it, the first two seasons of Arrow, like I said, was basically Batman. It was dark. It was gritty. Um, we had Deathstroke show up. We had uh, Why Am I Blanket? Firefly show up. We had other Batman villains show up. And then in season three, Arrow's big bad was literally Raz al Ghul, who was the original big bad of Nolan's Batman trilogy. So you can see where it, where it was inspired by it. Basically, Arrow could not mention Gotham or or Batman or anything like that. They did eventually mention Gotham, but we'll get to that. Um, The Suicide Squad came in in the second season and it looked like they were going to set up a Suicide Squad spinoff. Apparently, it was on the table. We had characters like Deadshot, Bronze Tiger, and uh, then Amanda Waller, who led the Suicide Squad, for example. Again, these characters are mostly considered Batman characters. We had a reference to Harley Quinn. Uh, in that we saw the black back of a woman's head in an asylum and her hair was blonde and she had pigtails. So that, that's got Harley Quinn written all over it. But uh, they decided not to go the route. And I believe the reason that that ultimately did not happen was because Warner Brothers slash DC wanted to do the Suicide Squad movie on the big screen. We have the gift of hindsight and know that that was not ultimately a success. Yes, it was financially successful, but nobody wants to talk about the 2016 Suicide Squad movie. So it's, it's interesting to me that we could have seen maybe more of the Batman universe early on in the Arrowverse. But unfortunately, 
if that's how Warner Brothers and DC's whole policy of don't say Batman on TV, Batman's a big screen superhero. And uh, it's a shame because I think Batman would have lent himself to the Arrowverse nicely. I think his characters clearly did lend itself to the Arrowverse nicely. Um, and then after that, things took a bit of a change. Eventually, Arrow was allowed the Suicide Squad characters back. And then came the reference to Gotham and nothing would ever be the same. Uh, Bruce Wayne referenced Gotham and Arrow, or, sorry, Oliver Queen mentioned Bruce Wayne and Gotham in Arrow's sixth season. And the following season, we saw the introduction of the Scarlet Knight, Batwoman. And what's really interesting here is how they wrote that. There was a little bit of retconning and rewriting done in order to pretend that things were a certain way all along when they weren't. Oliver Queen is notoriously the Arrow versus first hero. But when Batwoman showed up, Batman was apparently doing his thing for 20 years in Gotham. Nobody talked about it. And he was such an urban legend that nobody believed he'd exist at. Hence Oliver Queen's line, I'm the original vigilante. Apparently he wasn't. He really said that? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, okay. In the Elseworlds crossover. A Supergirl we know was from a different Earth. So on her Earth, we know that Batman did exist. Meanwhile, Barry was a Batman fanboy and he thought that uh, Batman was real, even though there was no evidence of it. So Barry and Kara were like, Batman's real, Batman's real. And Oliver was like, Batman's not real. I'm the original vigilante. And it took going to Gotham City, seeing the bat signal and running into Batwoman for him to finally believe that, yes, Batman was actually a thing. It was a kind of a goofy rewrite. It's like, hey, guys, Batman was here all along. We just weren't allowed to talk about him. But it worked ultimately because then when Batwoman came about, we had to retroactively introduce Batman. And Bat- Batwoman introduced the first time we ever saw Batman on screen in the Arrowverse through a, a sequence of cleverly shot flashback sequences where you saw the back of Batman uh, as he saved, as he tried to save Kate Kane and stop the Joker, who you also saw the back of his head. Um, and then flash forward a few episodes, uh, Bruce Wayne was officially introduced. But Bruce Wayne wasn't introduced. It was actually his best friend, former best friend, Tommy Elliott, who decided to wear his face because uh, that's what Hush does. He wears people's faces. Um, so we had Warren Christie cast as Bruce Wayne slash Batman in uh, the Arrowverse. I don't know if he'll ever come back, but Warren Christie never actually played Bruce Wayne slash Batman. He played Tommy Elliott slash Hush pretending to be Bruce Wayne slash Batman. So we've never actually seen Bruce Wayne in the Arrowverse, but we have seen, we do know what he looks like. So that's quite interesting. So that if they ever do want to go down that route, we know what he looks like and we know which actor they'll be casting in the role. It's interesting. It's an interesting approach because again, here we are nearly 20 years later and we, the, the, the WB slash the CW is still like, don't use Batman. And it's a shame at this point because it feels like they've done everything but use Batman. But I would like to see it happen at some point. I mean, Batwoman's gone as far as the original Batwoman, played by Ruby Rose, was Kate Kane, Bruce Wayne's cousin. And it was interesting in that it was tied to Bruce Wayne's disappearance. We now know that Bruce Wayne and Batman, have they just up and left Gotham. Bye, guys. Um, disappeared three years ago and has not been seen since. But ever since Kate Kane's departure and uh, Ryan Wilder's introduction as the new Batwoman, they've kind of dropped that because there's no longer a character directly tied to the Bruce Wayne family. Even Julia Pennyworth, who was Alfred's daughter, didn't appear in season three at all, I don't think. So it just feels like they're kind of dropping the whole directly tied to Batman 
issue. Of course, looking back now, it's quite an interesting place to be because in the modern day, we can talk about Batman all the time. He just can't appear. Whereas back in the Smallville days, back in the Birds of Prey days, you couldn't really talk about Batman. Birds of Prey obviously referenced it from time to time, but just those shows were held back because they couldn't talk about him. And nowadays we can talk about him all the time. It's an interesting place to be because we're at the stage where Batman does exist. We're just not allowed to talk about him. And I feel like that kind of, it gives the show more creative freedom in Batwoman, but it also ties its hands because I don't feel like Batwoman can go off the air without ever directly addressing the question of where is Batman? That was a story that was started in the first season. And it it would be disappointing for them to make it this far without ever wrapping up the story. So I feel like as far as our history lesson goes, that's as far as we went from 2000 and 2000 all the way up to 2022. And it feels like we've definitely evolved in Batman's journey on television, but we haven't really got to the stage of where he can fully appear. We know what he looks like in the Arrowverse. We've seen the back of the Batsuit on him. We've seen the front of the Batsuit when it wasn't on him. I think that's as far as they can actually go without introducing him. And it does pose an interesting question of, Will or should we ever see Batman now that on the in the Arrowverse now that those barriers have been knocked down? I'm in two minds about that because I feel like if they were going to do it, they should have done it four or five years ago. I feel like now they've gotten so far that they've done they've exhausted every possibility that doesn't include him. Do we even really need to go there now? And we've established Batwoman has her own incredible hero. Gotham has a new protector that isn't directly tied to the Batfam. But she is. She started her own Bat Fam now, so excellent work, uh, Ryan. We don't need Batman. But on the other end, I like I said, I don't think Batwoman can fully go off the air without ever addressing what actually happened to him. Well, where would you guys land on that? Now that you're fully up to date on the Bat history on the CW, mm-hmm. I'm of two minds as well. Um, one, uh, it feels like they trained us not to expect him to come on TV because there's like, like you said, there have been like Easter eggs and hints and he's kind of been there and he kind of hasn't been, but no one's really expecting Bruce, the real Bruce Wayne slash Batman to actually make an appearance on, um, at least not on CW, DC TV, um, perhaps maybe on HBO Max he will. Um, but there's also, so I'm like, okay, if we don't see him on the CW, but I'm also like, I kind of want to see Bruce on the CW, like how would the CW play Bruce Wayne? How would they do Batman? The only thing though is you introduce this man, he's gonna pull focus. It just is what it is. Um, and especially if you introduce him on somebody else's show, like let's not do that. Like maybe like if they do a backdoor pilot for a Batman show and he appears and then he just does his own thing on another show, that'd be different, but he cannot guest star. Like he had like um like it'll be Sayonara for that for that other show. He'll just end up taking it over. Um so I kind yes, I want to see CW's Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Do we need to see him? No, we don't. We're kind of good. They they they've done an excellent job creating their own Gotham and Batman characters um and through lines for the Batman that where he doesn't need to show up if they don't want him to. It seems like such a tall order to get Batman on a CW show, given how many Batmans there have been (laughs) on the big screen in just the past, what, like 15 years, maybe. Um, I don't know. I don't think I'm the best person to make that call or have an opinion on Batman. If you guys want it, I will be there to support you. If not, same thing. (laughs) But I think it would be fun. I don't know. Who cares? Let's do it. 
That's what I say. Maybe it's too expensive. Maybe every time they say Batman, Ben Affleck demands a check. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just kind kidding. Of... Just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Um, I feel like you you summed it up. Why the hell not? I feel like they should have done that many, many times and they didn't. And we're kind of past that point now. The Arrowverse will live on forever, but it's prime days are certainly behind it. And I feel like they had many chances to do it and didn't. And now that could have been, we've talked about this, the whole Warner Brothers don't use these characters on the small screen uh, order that they sent down. The Suicide Squad was pulled from Arrow. That after, this, after the disaster that was the early DCEO and that they couldn't figure out what the movies wanted to look like, the CW got all those rights back. And so we saw characters like the Suicide Squad again return an arrow. The window for the backdoor pilot had come and gone, so they decided not to go that route, but they came back in uh, the show. Um, but however, recently, now that the DCEU is finally getting itself back on track, again, they've sent that rude order down to the CW to stop using certain characters. John Constantine on Legends of Tomorrow, for example, who's been played by Matt Ryan since the original Constantine TV series. And I can I just say Matt Ryan plays Constantine beautifully. He's the, one of the most comic accurate portrayals I've ever seen in my life. And yes, some Legends is quite goofy, so we didn't see all of what he can do on that in the way that we saw all of what he could do on the Constantine series. But unfortunately, now that the, the DCEU want to make their own Constantine series, they sent the order to Legends of Tomorrow to write Constantine out, which I find completely insulting because while the DCU was getting its acting gear, the Arrowverse was knew exactly what it wanted to be. It was bringing in their hit ratings for the CW. It was successful like they wanted it to be. And it had far, even, even as directionless as it can be sometimes, it had far more of an end game than the movies. So because that order is back in place, Matt Ryan had to be written out as John Constantine. Thankfully, the goofy Red Legends writers managed to bring him back in as an original character now, the, orig the originator of time travel. So Matt Ryan still has a job, and rightfully so. But the fact that that order has now come back after all these years, I do think that will prevent Batman from ever showing up in the Arrowverse for the foreseeable, because they don't even know what they want to do with Batman on the big screen. We have three at the moment. We don't need a fourth one on the TV. That's probably what they're thinking right now. So. I don't know if we'll say it. I do think the window for it to happen has come and gone. I would, part of me would really like to say it because I remember when Arrow started, I was like, well, if it's this easy, why not just do a Batman TV series? And they never did it. We now have Batwoman, which is as close as we're going to get to that, I think. So I don't think we need a Batman series in today's day and age. I do think the time will come again when we should have one. But for right now, I think we're okay with that one. But just for Batwoman's sake, I think the story should at least address what happened to him. Because since that was the original mystery that birthed the show, it would feel kind of weird to end the show without at least addressing that. Will he be in flashbacks in Gotham Knights, do we think? I think so. Or at least like the, they're not horns. My God, get it together. <laughs> like the, the helmet, the ears. Um, and I, I told both of you this before, and I'll probably keep saying it because I just love this thing that Teen Titans did, but the bats flying by as he's being spoken about will probably happen. I mean, Michael did reference that they've been able to name drop Batman and Bruce Wayne and do flashbacks through Batwoman. So I don't see why Gotham Knights can't do it either, even if we don't have like full-on storylines where he's, reference the entire time and we're going back into the past to talk about certain things. I mean, I feel like they're going to have to if if um, that's his adoptive son is the lead. So we're going to be talking about Bruce. 
I hope to see him like in a mirror or something or like a shadow on the wall. Yeah, to bring this full circle, I, I, I hope to kind of go the whole birds of prayer route and that you kind of see flashbacks to him. If you don't want to have an actor doing dialogue, don't just put a stand in and Val Kilmer's suit from the Batman Forever. Like, you know what I mean? Those suits are there. Of course, they're expensive to use 24 seven. So don't use them 24 seven. Hire a stand in, fill in some nice shots, CGI Gotham in, in the background. And there you have your Batman flashbacks. Michael's got the like, budget all figured out. <laughs> you know what I mean? He does. It's great. <laughs> just like... First of all, the Val Kilmer suit was very underrated. We should see it again. But even besides that, of course, it's expensive to design a suit. I don't even know why Batwoman did it. But you have all these unused suits from the classic movie sitting there. Use one of them. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the CW is co-owned by Warner Brothers. They own the suits. So I just think it, you use, use your stand-in, fill in some Batman flashbacks, allude to them maybe slightly better than Batwoman did in the early days. But like, have him be a presence without having him actually be a presence because we just like everyone was worried about Superman doing on Supergirl that character can overshadow things because they're larger than life so so don't go down that route you don't have to he's dead if you want to bring him back to life in the final season go for it but we're not there yet you guys we do have a Catwoman connection to the CW we do which I'm very excited about Uh, my girl Liz Gillies formerly known as Elizabeth Gillies from Dynasty um, voiced Catwoman in the animated movie Catwoman Hunted. Now, my knowledge of that ends there. I just see Liz Gillies posting about it. And I'm like, yes, Catwoman, it's perfect. Um, have you guys watched it? What do you guys think about that? Do you think she should play a live action Catwoman? Because I do. I just think Liz Gillies should do everything. <laughs> I have not seen the movie, but I've seen the trailer for it. It was released in, at DC Fandom, um, and I was very busy the day of DC Fandom. <laughs> um, I remember watching the trailer. It looked very good. I believe the plot is, I don't remember all of the plot, but obviously Catwoman's being haunted, and she teams up with Batwoman, and the two of them do get into quite a lot of action together. I thought it looked very good at the time. I do believe that the casting is on point as well, I think, and I do think she would make a fantastic Catwoman. Um, I've seen... I'm familiar with Dynasty now myself. I'm learning. Um, I'm not just teaching today. I'm learning. Um, and I think if the CW ever wanted to introduce a Catwoman, I think that would be perfect. Like, again, she's right there, user. Yeah, um, so- she wore the, the a, a cat suit. It wasn't specifically a cat suit for a Catwoman, but on <laughs> Dynasty, she wore a, a tight black situation. And, it was, and she looked it was amazing. Gi- it was giving Catwoman. I don't know. I feel it. Liz can do no wrong in my eyes. Um, I think she'd be great. I, I haven't seen um, Catwoman Hunted either. I've seen the gifts and it looks like it's a lot of fun. Uh, I think Liz would be amazing, actually, because she has that fierceness and she has comedic timing and she knows how to be like um, both sexy and vulnerable and like take someone for all their, their worth. So she'd be an excellent casting. I mean, CW, take notes, pay attention. If you're ever doing a Catwoman <laughs> show, if she's ever appearing, um, like hire Liz. And speaking of Dynasty, should we get into what we're watching? Yes. Yes. It's officially yes. Dynasty week, guys. It's the floodgates are open. I'm going to be talking about Dynasty every week now <laughs> we're excited so the, the premiere was uh friday march 11th not premiere it came back it's confusing um it was a great episode i'll try not to do go too spoiler because i know you guys are in your early dynasty journeys um 
but the episode revolved around Fallon getting back into work after a, you know, pretty intense health scare. I'll leave it at that. And um, her team of employees tries to like kick her out because they don't trust her to like lead the company so soon after such an intense situation she was in. So they're like threatening to kick her out as CEO temporarily, but she doesn't accept that. She's like, no, I have to be in control always. So she, <laughs> she gets her husband to stand in as acting CEO to try to like have eyes on him. My favorite scene was when she is hiding in an air duct in her office, feeding Liam what to say in a meeting is the greatest scene ever. And she ends up um, fighting with a rat in the air duct and falling through the ceiling. And it was a perfect moment of dynasty comedy. I think now more than ever, they know their language. It's not just a soap. It's not just like a drama. They have those like comedy beats that's so new, unique to dynasty now. Um, but yeah, I loved the episode. I'll get to a cringy moment later because um, we're going to roast that a little bit. It was not great. Um, but I also do love, I was talking about the comedy side, but the soap opera side is still very in full force because Crystal has an evil doppelganger and it's a oh, chef's kiss. Amazing. Um, but how far are you guys in your dynasty journey? I know Sabrina, you just started to get your feet wet. I know, but I love Fallon already, like in episode four, I believe. And when you mentioned that they were kicking her out of her company, I was offended already. I was, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, who do I have to fight? Like, do I have to jump into the TV screen? Um, but what you just said sounds very exciting and funny. I love soap operas and I feel like soap operas are not doing it like Dynasty is. Um, so... I don't know. I have to catch up. I like. I need to schedule a bin session, you know, just spend the weekend just getting my whole life to Dynasty. Um, where am I? Like, episode four is, I guess I shouldn't really spoiler, but we're still dealing with the FBI and the nonsense surrounding what happened. You still got the crystal window. one, <laughs> the first crystal. Yes. <laughs> I got the first crystal. The, the classic days. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, by hot and no, nine episodes into season one. Um, I just watched the Thanksgiving one. Um, that's a I, that's a classic episode. Yeah, oh my goodness! <laughs> I don't even know what to expect. Um, you're automatically like, no, not sports, and then you're like, this was not sports. It was, it was <laughs> so good. Um, I, I, I I totally get what you're saying. You can see how it's really adopting its tone as it goes further on, and it's like building itself up, kind of in a way that Riverdale did, and that like anything can happen in it. You totally buy it. It's so self-aware in what it's doing, and it's so enjoyable. I have to say that whenever I'm lost for 40 minutes or that I need to just switch my brain off, I know CW is still very on brand for me, but like when you're not like talking about superheroes or you're not trying to catch up on 70 episodes of The Walking Dead, just quietly sitting and watching an episode of Dynasty is one of my most, one of the things I enjoy most doing. Um, 2022 introduced that for me and I will definitely be holding on to it. It's one of my favorite things to do now. Um, And I actually can't wait to get caught up so that we can all discuss it in depth on our what are we watching segments that's such a good um way to recommend it to you i was like oh i mean i'm already watching it but if i wasn't watching it i'd be like if we had reed hadn't sold me on the show already what you just said would have <laughs> yeah it's such an easy watch and i know there's some fans that are kind of like frustrated with the writing just because sometimes they cover like the same like story beats 
but I think that as the series has gone on, it's kind of straddled this line between like a really um, addictive soap opera and sort of like a sitcom sensibility where sometimes the character development is like only one episode. You know how in sitcoms mm-hmm. where like they learn their lesson, but by the next episode, they're up to the same kind of thing. Yeah. And they kind of do that. It's very much serialized. Like you can't just like hop in one episode, but I think it's been interesting to see them find their own language apart from the original and apart from anything else on TV to just kind of be funny and earnest, but also do things that are completely outlandish and just take you out of our world. Like they're not interested in being realistic at all. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's what I love about it is that you can watch it for 45 minutes and you're just in that crazy Carrington world (laughs) and nothing else matters. Yeah, that's my favorite kind of TV. The more outlandish, the better. Just a nice little 40 minutes of escapism. And I have to say, like I said already, coming away from it after 40 minutes, you do have a smile on your face because you laugh so much afterwards. Um, And it's those kind of lighthearted shows I enjoy the most. Um, So yes, I hope that was a good recommendation (laughs) because I'm still new to this, um, but I'm enjoying it a great deal. Same. I mean, I'm enjoying it immensely. And I think Liz needs to get more flowers. Like obviously the people who are watching Dynasty um, are giving flowers, but she does uh, because she is carrying that show on her back. Like I would even go so far as to say that she is really carrying the genre of soap operas on her back. And I think people who watch the daytime soaps are missing out. So if you like Bold and Beautiful, if you like Days of Our Lives, um, is all my children's show? I don't know. General Hospital or Young and the Restless, watch Dynasty. <laughs> you need, <Yes>. like, because, <laughs> yeah, like, they're tired of regurgitated storylines on the daytime soaps, too. I mean, that's that's a flaw of the genre. It is what it is. But if you want ridiculousness and, like, what you traditionally get from soap operas, you have to watch Dynasty. Don't be like me and Miss I for, like, five years. Watch it Same. now. <laughs> you know what was not chill this week? Superman and Lois. That episode was incredible, but I was not relaxed. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is not an emotion we know watching Superman at us. At all. I mean, it's always so good, but it, there's always so much. How they fit that much story into 45 minutes of television and have it be cohesive and like consistent with what they're telling. I don't know, but the writer's room is amazing. Like, applause to them. Yeah, I was like, I didn't know we were going here so quick, but you know what? Here we are, and it's great. Like, I gasp audibly during an episode of the show more than any other show I've ever maybe watched. Like, I I can think of, like, three moments where I was like, oh, during this week's episode alone. Like, it was pure insanity, and I loved it. It was. Yeah, they really turned up the, like, dials as far as... It- all of the stories involved in it went um, because like Lois finding out about Jonathan in the same episode that Anderson, like those Phil Rogue, there was so much packed into that, like you guys said, and they managed to juggle it all really well. Like you have a really like, uh, of course, the family stories like are surrounding a Kryptonian drug, but like in general, you have family stories, family dramas hitting an emotional peak at the same time Lois is trying to be stressed out about Clark being imprisoned in the DO day with the season one villain. So it's like there was so much to juggle in that. And they, they did such a good job of it because you're right. I couldn't believe the way things ended up. I don't know if 
bizarros if that's the end of him yet I, it would be sad to see him go so quickly but it's definitely taking things in an interesting direction particularly the end of the episode because now we, I said last week was it last week or the week before that there are three potential big bads that we genuinely don't know which one will be the big bad and now it feels like one of them has been taken off the table and we are potentially left with a team of two big bads now and that one I didn't see coming because one of them was very human. One of them, while human, was directed more towards the alien side of things. So to see them come together and form this kind of unholy alliance is quite shocking. And I genuinely didn't see that coming. I didn't either. Though, I guess now in hindsight, when um, with the brothers teaming up and then those two teaming up, it makes sense as a full circle story. Um, but I was like, sir, really? We're doing this at the end of the episode? I mean, I guess. But also bring Bizarre back. <laughs> because like I was so hurt watching it because I love Bizarro. I've had an attachment to him since I was a kid, mainly because of the um the animated series. I've just always loved mm. Bizarro. And so doing him like that, it was so dirty. Like just I need like I don't know her actual name, so I'm so sorry, Clark's mama, but I'm gonna call her Mama L. Like, please bring him back. <laughs> um now you've stopped. Is it Lara? I think. I think. Don't hold me that to that. Lara, right. Lara L. Um, yeah, I don't want Bizarro to go yet either. Not only was Tyler Hacklin great as the bad guy, um, it, it, it was nice seeing that arc because he was so violent. Like that scene there a few weeks ago with that woman, God love her, head twisted off her shoulders. Um, like they went really, really full in on the, how, how like aggressive this villain was. And obviously, if you know the comics, you'll know Bizarro is not to be taken lightly. And the show certainly didn't take him lightly. But then they came around and gave him like a solid story. And you kind of rooted for him in the end, which I wasn't expecting. So to see him done so dirty by Anderson, who nobody likes, just <laughs> justice for Bizarro. Anderson yes. needs to get a life. Like I'm, dude, it's not the vibe. Go away. <laughs> I know. And I don't, I think if there, if we were to talk about a weak point of Superman Lois season two, I think would be Anderson's character. Not because um, the actor, is that Ian Bowen, I believe, mm-hmm. um, isn't doing well. He's doing fantastic as Anderson, but I'm not quite, I don't know his motivation for what he's doing, besides the fact that he really did believe that he would be, um, working as a partner with Superman and it just did not work out for him and instead of you know figuring out how to make that work we decided instead just to ruin his life and that's the that's the part I'm like wow um perhaps more workplace communication before we Mm -hmm. decide to completely decide to destroy someone also can I say that they had me so scared that my man what's his name Tal I don't know the brother I thought he was dead for like a hot minute and I was like you bring him back just to take him away from me again. I was so sad. I know no one really likes him either, but I, I really enjoy that character. <laughs> yeah, no, the fact that we had to break right as the sun did not work for him. It was yeah, supposed to bring him back. And then he put him down on the ground and I was like, well, I guess everyone's dead. <laughs> exactly. Right next to dead Bizarro. And it was like, it was like they were to kind of symbolize. And I think that was just written in to keep us hanging on for when, the, when it came back from commercial. Because like then he was like, oh, look, he's alive. No big deal. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the uh, direction the show went. And they were making it a very big deal that it looked like he didn't come back. So uh, I'm, I'm glad he came back too. I think... Uh, we all kind of have grown attached to him, particularly this season. Although we just grew attached to him. 
Reed grew attached to him last season. Um, He's I cute. <laughs> so leave me alone. No. Um, but no, I, I, it's more the actor than the character, but well, whatever. I'll leave it there. I, I get it. I'm just like, I would rather have Bizarro. So I mean, if I could trade them. Like the only reason why I wouldn't is because you love Tal so much, Reed. Other than that, I want Bizarro back. He's fun. Um, but I guess now he lives in Joe Goldberg's murder chamber again. Is that where he is now? <laughs> in that glass box. <laughs> yeah. I guess he'll come back at some point because they kind of teased the redemption there. And and that's more interesting than uh, business suit Morgan Edge taking over the town. So I I would like to see him come back someday. I know I uh, Sorry, Sabrina. I kind of have grown attached to him <laughs> over the years, over the years, year. Um, so I would definitely like to see him come back. Uh, and it's particularly with a more interesting story like that, where you could see him redeem himself. The fact when someone redeems himself, it usually ends in their death. And Supergirl did a similar thing there, where this the villain sacrificed himself for the hero that they used to hate. So the fact that Superman at Lois refreshingly decided not to kill him off in the end. I would like to think they'll not go down that route ultimately because we don't want him to die. We don't want him to die. Um, so yeah, I would like to see more of him in the future, but I'm okay with him resting the character for now because we did we were we were spoiled there. We got two appearances in quite in quite close proximity. So if they want to rest him for a while and let him redeem himself off screen, go for it. But I don't think that should be the last we see of him. Okay. I mean, I'll just be over here in the minority, but I <laughs> do like what you mentioned about um, the way that the show sort of, um, it sets up what you would expect and then completely turns, it, um, the scene turns on its head and it says, oh, okay. So like, yes, he took the kryptonite for his brother, but then he didn't die. So it wasn't like, oh, we did the same tired story trope. That is effective for like making people emotional, but then the kind of the story either falls flat or we just move forward and it doesn't really affect the lead. Um, they do that a lot with Superman and Lois. Like I know to me, the juiciest moment of the, uh, as far as like, um, besides of course, Bitsy's acting was when um, Sarah called Aubrey, the girl that she kissed at camp because she couldn't talk to Jordan about her um parents marriage failing and I was like girl you messy but also I'm here for this conversation um and they're actually really cute so Jordan perhaps your days are numbered as her boyfriend but I don't know I'm I'm team Sarah Aubrey if Aubrey ever comes to town that would be fun <laughs> I've said Aubrey won me over by appearing on screen I thought they I I wasn't sure what to make of that story because we were watching it live and as it was adapting and it kind of felt like it was through in there to create some conflict and then dropped completely. Whereas maybe that's why it would have worked better if you were binging it together. You can say, oh, okay, here it comes up again. So the fact now actually seeing Aubrey as a, like a, a tangible, real a person and that they have a role in the story, I'm like, okay, yes, I can get on board with this. I thought the actor did a great job and I would definitely be on board for seeing more of their scenes going forward. I don't think that's the last we've seen of them. I'm still not really sure what their end game here is with Sarah and Jordan because Season one made them like set them up like soulmates, like there was no one else in their lives. Sarah's off-screen boyfriend was like such a weakly writ thinly written character, so that we wouldn't like him. Um, and now suddenly they've introduced this other character who is also off-screen. So maybe when they introduce them more going forward, it'll get more interest. I just don't know what their overall arc over here is because it's hard to follow. But again, that's the whole subverting expectations. I'm sure they're going to pull something out of the bag in the second half of the season. You'll be like, now I get it because that's kind of where I, where I, what I felt like watching the episode this week. 
Yeah, and Jordan's been kind of preoccupied with Jonathan's whole mess, mm-hmm. which I did appreciate how that all culminated, not so much with like the million alien inhalers he was hiding for his girlfriend, but more so like the aftermath of his parents finding out. And I felt like um, we know he makes a lot of questionable decisions, but I felt like we could see on his face that he knew what he was doing was wrong and he was ashamed to have disappointed his parents. I think I kind of appreciated that more so than like him continuing to be like, oh, you can't tell me what to do and like getting more of those alien inhalers and continuing to do the wrong thing. But I appreciated how that storyline came all together. And I'm interested to see where it goes from there because he got a talking to from Superman or Clark and Lois. I don't know. What did you guys think of that? Before we get it, I know you guys want to talk about The Flash. (laughs) um, It hurt my heart. Um, it reminded me a lot of um, Tom Holland in the first Spider-Man movie mm. for him, uh, where he's under the brick and he's like crying because he can't lift it. Um, they're one of the great things about actually casting your teenagers uh, with actors who are around that age, even if they are adults, is that you can capture their youngness in the way you can't capture the youth of a 27-year-old who's pretending to be um, 15. So he looked so young in that crying moment. It was so effective because you're like, Jonathan, you keep messing up. You keep making these bad decisions. But we're also aware that you're a teenager and you're really trying to do right by your girlfriend, even if she doesn't deserve to be done right by. But I think he's specifically thinking about her home life, not necessarily anything else, um, and trying to protect her. I thought that was so effectively done, especially because he'd already been yelled at by Lois and now he's yelled at by Clark. And there's something about, for and this might be gender specific for young men, but there's something about your father being upset with you um, in that sort of no nonsense, how can you do this? I'm disappointed kind of way that is really hard to like deal with. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an extra layer there because he's, trying to find out what his place is in this family with his dad and his brother. And I mean, Lois doesn't have powers, but I think he's still trying to find his footing as one of the three, I guess, men to be weird and archaic about it, but to be the one that doesn't have those powers yet. And to be able to, for a moment, feel like you're fitting in, but you know that what you're doing to achieve that is wrong. I think it was a really um, great scene. Effective. I thought it was really powerful as well. And I thought Jordan Alsace, who plays Jonathan, did a fantastic job. And uh, like you said, conveying that, the, the authenticity of his emotions. Because before this, I was kind of worried about the girlfriend because she's such a thinly written character. And I was like, I don't know where to go with this. But the fact that we just saw it from his perspective this week, I thought that enhanced the overall story because that wasn't thinly written and it wasn't thinly acted. Everything came together there on what could have fallen apart, Every, but it didn't. Everything came together really nicely. And that scene, both the scene, first of all, Betsy, what a performance. Um, and then uh, Clark's more firmer, I'm disappointed, I'm angry, this can't happen again kind of uh, approach that really broke him in the end. It, of course, it really made you feel for him. And I just thought that was like such a powerful note. I know it technically wasn't the end scene, but let's be honest, it's the one we're all going to take away from it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was definitely a powerful note to end the episode on. Imagine Clark coming home from a long day at, at work as Superman. <laughs> like we saw that day he had, he has to come home to that. 
awful. It's awful. It's like, I was charged with treason and now I have to deal with whatever is going on with you and this XK. What is happening? He was like, I carried my brother to the sun today and I'm coming home to this mess. <laughs> a day in the life of Superman. Uh, that's what makes Superman and Lois so great because it effectively uses like the fact that it's a superhero show and blends with a family drama. So you get to see him like go through a big battle and like his own emotional stakes. And then he has to come home to find out what his teenage son has done. He's just dad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then another big TV event that happened this week, which I know Sabrina is very excited about because I saw the live tweeting, um, was The Flash's return. Um, It feels weird to call it a mid-season premiere because the season of The Flash is only six episodes in and we know we have another 12 to go. But as far as it's mid-season because they held it for so long. We had the first five episodes back at the end of last year with its five-episode Armageddon event. Now we are officially kicking off season eight and definitely different from the first five episodes, but super, super fun. And I have thoughts about it. But uh, what did you think of it, Sabrina? Oh my God, I loved it. Like, that's like the big, like, if I could, like, if there's a way to do that in all caps, just like verbally, that's what I would do. Um, Because uh, Jordan Fisher and Jessica Parker Kennedy, as a comedic duo, um, just, it's it's chef's kiss. Like, it's just truly amazing. They did, uh, they did Goofy really well. But like, the thing that sets Goofy on the flash apart when they do it well, is if it also has heart. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of heart in this episode between these two siblings as they like try to be the best superheroes that they can be. I thought they carried the episode really well for an episode that basically doesn't have the main cast in it until the end. I mean, the main cast might as well be guest stars um, on their own show because those two had the forefront of the story. Um, but yeah, I would say one of the best episodes of the Flash period. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. And I feel like it had a backdoor pilot tinge about it and that it definitely felt like it was kind of setting up their own story. But more than that, the reason I enjoyed it stems back really a lot. It stems back to one of the biggest issues I have with this modern iteration of The Flash. And it's that it seems to be The Flash sets aside two or three episodes a season to do storylines without the main cast in it. So you have, you write Barry and Iris out on holiday or Caitlin and Killer Frost, even though they're played by the same person, but they're two separate characters conveniently disappear at the same time um so then you have to focus on the new characters who are in full-time parts of the cast like chester and allegra and cecile to me has showed so much promise but they never use her right so it has to focus on them instead and then caitlin gets thrown in on the whole oh i need to patch someone up or find out an issue here but those episodes to me are some of the worst episodes The Flash has ever done, simply because enough work has not been done that we care about those characters. So it says a lot that an episode less led by two guest stars, I was more invested in than an episode led by half of the main cast in the other in the previous seasons. I think The Flash has really struggled with some of its main characters. I do like the actors. I think they bring a lot of quirk and heart to the show. But I don't think in terms of characters that those They've been developed enough to be full-time regular characters. We don't know enough about them in normal episodes. So when you get a whole episode devoted to them, you're like, and? So the fact that we have this episode, for example, that focused on two guest characters. I know Nora was a series regular in season five, but she's no longer. So the fact that you, you focus on Nora and Bart, 
Maybe it's the fact that they're comic book characters and they're related to the Flash family, or maybe it's just that they did better work building them up. But I'm more attached to those characters than I am half of the Flash main cast. And I think that was the best episode they've ever done that did not involve the primary cast. And it just shows how good they how good they still are at building characters. And I wish they were part of the main cast instead of some of the other characters they've introduced over the years. Sounds like a toast by way of a roast. <laughs> nice segue. There's mine. I don't need to speak for the rest of the episode. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I agree. Um because Allegra and Chester, oh, they need to focus on them as characters and rather than trying to make that romance happen. It's not, let's just focus on the the two of them individually if we want to make a romance happen in the last season, then let's do that then. Exactly. That's like, um, we don't have a storyline for either one, so stick them together and that'll take the box. Oh, God, yeah, you're right. And that never, that that's hard to do. I mean, though, what's interesting, and I know we, we need to move on to Toast and a Rose, but like the... um. The, the fact that they were able to, to squeeze in a mini little romance between um, Bart and Avery and have it do really well. I mean, they were like the cutest thing and they only had what, like 10 minutes of screen time for their romance, but it was, I'm sold. Like bring mm-hmm. him back to see Avery or bring her to see him at some point. I mean, cause I would like to see more. Me too. That was a much better example. Again, give us those characters instead. <laughs> it's all right. I know, or not sorry. Um, <laughs> but so yes, a toast and a roast. I today I'm toasting. I have a roast too, but we're gonna we're gonna be positive first. Uh All American and then All American Homecoming. I'm gonna talk about them together because I thought they were both excellent um this week, mainly because what the franchise is doing really well is um centering storylines about teens like moving into their young adulthood and realizing that high school is over. Um, and that the, like you were on top in high school, we are now back at the bottom. And so one of the things I thought that all American did really well, um, this week was Spencer, like Spencer's used to being, if not the big man on campus and like the, the best on the field, but now you're in D one college football, you're not the best on the field anymore. Like you have to earn your spot the same way Olivia has to earn her spot at the newspaper. Um, the episode is really about how you have to deal with transition and all American homecoming has already been doing that um, with Simone, but like with Simone, she's learning like, Hey, you can't put your experiences onto other people. Sometimes you just need to listen when they're telling you something, whether that's them talking about their issues with their mom and perhaps she's doing better or um, it's like, you already know your team captain is not well-liked by the her teammates. So why would you throw her a big giant birthday party? We could have done a luncheon. Like it would have been real cute. Just you, your two friends and her. And it would it would have made her birthday. I mean, they pole danced at the end. So like we brought it to something that she wanted to, like that, I think her name was pronounced Thea, that Thea wanted to do. But like, I don't know. I just really like the All-American franchise and what they're doing on a network that is specifically about teens and young adults and them growing. So it's like a coming of age story, but they're for older kids, not 16 year olds. I'm behind on Homecoming, but stay tuned for the results of my four episode test. I'm so excited. Like y'all don't even realize I'm like, like holding on to like what is Reed going to say? Uh, so this week I'm going to toast just the fact that Dynasty's back because I, you know how I am with Dynasty. Um, but I'm going to also roast it because there were so, there were two scenes that I just, oof, they were so cringy. 
So in the first scene between Fallon and Blake, Blake being Fallon's father, Mm -hmm. she walks into his office or room or wherever he was. I don't remember now, but, and he's like buttoning his shirt and she makes a comment about seeing him like half naked or something. And I'm like, do we need to do that? It's so, could he just not have just had a shirt on the whole time? Mm -hmm. And I know they're probably writing to the dynamic that Liz and Grant have. Grant plays Blake um, because they're very like playful and stuff like that behind the scenes, I imagine. But I, it's like, that's her dad. And I don't want to, I don't, that's weird. And it happened again at the end of the episode when Fallon and Liam are in their room and they're in an intimate position and Blake walks in and yeah, ooh, it was just so weird. <laughs> and then after he leaves, they just keep going on doing what they were going to do. And I was like, how did that not suck the air out of the room, kill the vibe? I was like, <laughs> can we just not do that in the future? Can we keep Blake out of their bedroom? Like, I know all these people live in the same mansion, but <laughs> it's enough. I can't do it. <laughs> The CW always gets weird, though. That's the thing. And I don't know why. Like, it, it never fails. I think the vast majority of their shows has one weird, incestuous moment, whether it's played off as a joke or not. They did the same thing on All American when Jordan was like, ooh, who is the hot girl down the way? And it ended up being his twin sister, Olivia. No. Like... <laughs> Because uh, he didn't notice because she was wearing a big giant sun hat. And so when she turned, he realized it was. And then they kept, like, they joked about, it, I think, one to two more times in the episode. And I was like, that's not funny. I was like, I don't, like, let's not, let's not do that. I know the CW loves doing that, but that's one of the things that we need to dead on the network. I know, like, how does that make that to not only in the script, but in the final cut? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's just hope and pray that Blake and Fallon don't have any more scenes like that (laughs) oh god i'm sorry i think i just i'm not gonna manifest it so i'm just gonna so i had an idea soap operas tend to do the whole oh someone's actually not your father and i hope that they never do that with like blake and and fallon so i wouldn't put it past them because obviously paternity is a big thing on soap operas and like who's the real father they've done that so many times on the show um i i don't want to see that (laughs) <laughs> no so you know what let's just put that one in the garbage bin and hope it doesn't happen <laughs> it's not speaking into existence <laughs> exactly um and then jumping genres <laughs> from soap opera to um superhero things uh the batman spinoffs like that's my roast and it's not the penguin one i'm very excited for what's going to be happening in the penguin spinoff series that's supposedly going to be like scarface or so doing a gangster thing my roast is for the Arkham Horror Story. We do not need it. Um, every time someone's like, you know what? Let's do a horror story at an asylum. I'm like, it's been done. I'm sure it's been done better. You are going to traffic in history that is very problematic and hurtful for a lot of people in order to do this storyline. And I just don't think... We need it. Like, I'm sure Matt Reeves will do a whole social commentary thing in that horror story, but we don't need it. It's not necessary. If there is one thing that HBO Max can do as this goes forward, it's to kill it in the water and just focus on Penguin. That's my piece on it. I mean, will I watch the first episode? Probably. 
I'm an entertainment writer, but I, I just, no, I don't want it. I don't want it at all. I have to say the idea on paper sounds interesting because Arkham Asylum is a big thing in Batman, obviously. But since we're just starting out in Batman mythology in the, the Batman, the, the Batman universe, um, I feel like there aren't, of course, they'll probably come up with something that there will be some Batman mm-hmm. villains there, but I just feel like too soon. It doesn't need to happen right now. And I know that's not the same issue, but like you said, we literally have an American TV series called American Horror Story Asylum. And now we're basically doing American Horror Story Asylum, but in Gotham. So it just, it's, you're right, it has been done many, many times before. Will I watch it as a comic book fan to see how they portray Arkham Asylum? Yes, because we don't have enough live action Arkham Asylums. It's always talked around instead of actually being shown. I'm intrigued by it. But I know what you mean. I do think it's an interesting concept, but it kind of feels like another thing. Oh, we have to set this in Batman's universe, but not have Batman in it. How do we do this? I know. Focus on the villains instead. So it's an interesting one. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how it pans out. And I do trust Matt Reeves, but I know what you mean. It's not the freshest concept in the genre, even if it's a fresher concept in comic book genre. Mm, That's an interesting point. Perhaps I will retract my claws. (laughs) <laughs> and give, and we give will it say. a chance yes though i guess i will roast it on here and in articles if it is <laughs> not good while reading yours michael because i'm sure it'll give us the comic background that we need Why, thank um, you. Uh, i believe that is it for this batman centric podcast episode i felt like i learned so much so thank you michael Thank you, I am very, very happy you said that because I did not know what to expect from me ranting for 40 minutes. I hope it paid off. I hope it was educational and that the most educational thing you did not take away from it was how to pronounce Hacklan. I hope it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, my takeaway, so I don't know. <laughs> I hope it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And now for a little bit of an on-brand conclusion, join us next Monday. Same bat time, same bat channel.